Hello, I'm Professor Kozlowski, and welcome to our new series on Dostoevsky and Russian nihilism. Yeah, so I admit that I've got more ideas on this one than organization, at least here for this, this kickoff lecture. Um, I'm thrilled to talk about this stuff. Like, as most of you know at this point, I suspect, uh, I am a huge Dostoevsky fan. The first lecture series I did uh, for the Patreon was on the Brothers Karamazov. Like, we literally just read it through for I don't even know how many weeks. I think it got, came close to 16. Um, and we are at it again. I talked to the patrons, and having given them quite a few options, most of which were non-Dostoevsky-related, we came right back to Dostoevsky now that it's kind of worked out in my schedule that it's time to talk about demons. Um, and if you've, again, heard my lecture series or listened to the Brothers Karamazov lectures, you probably know already that Demons is probably my favorite Dostoevsky novel. Um, it is the one that I am almost always most eager to come back to, even though I am kind of read them through a cycle pretty frequently. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Like, it's a light, uh, considerably lighter than The Brothers Karamazov. Like, I think the Pivir Volokonsky translation clocks in at something like 600 pages instead of 800, and the print is way larger, so it's probably half the size of Brothers Karamazov, if not even shorter than that. Um, but more than that, I find Demons to be more fun to read. Like, the Brothers Karamazov is heavy and weighty, and there's a lot of really cool, really interesting stuff going on in it. Um, and by contrast, Demons is no less weighty. Like, it's got a lot of darkness in it, just as much as the Brothers Karamazov, if not more in some cases. Um... But there's something that Dostoevsky is doing in Demons, which is more in keeping with his other works, like Notes from Underground, like Crime and Punishment, where Brothers Karamazov is kind of his thesis on just everything. Like, he is dealing with the, the horror of the universe, and this is cosmic battle between good and evil. Here in Demons, we're seeing a lot of just more light-hearted strokes from Dostoevsky. Just, there are a lot of comical scenes that are just kind of silly, and the characterization that Dostoevsky is doing is just ripe for, for sort of caricature of some of the, the other characters that, or rather the other people that he is dealing with in his own time. If The Brothers Karamazov is a novel that deals with all of Dostoevsky's major themes, it is Dostoevsky trying to reckon with what is good about the world versus what is evil about the world, and the, the whole intellectualizing of Ivan Karamazov and the Grand Inquisitor is, you know, justly famous, but kind of like one part of a much larger story, much larger novel. Demons is what we get when Dostoevsky focuses squarely on that intellectual debate going on in Russia at this particular moment. Um, and it's kind of overlooked by many scholars. Like, I, I still don't get why this is the case. Um, I know that Notes from Underground is read in every undergraduate class that can, you know, get the excuse to read it. And most professors love to talk about its intellectualism without noticing that Dostoevsky is pretty viciously lampooning the underground man, the, the primary character in, in this story. Um, and lots of people like to read Crime and Punishment for good reason. It's a tight, awesome novel that, you know, is just groundbreakingly, like, direct. And Dostoevsky himself is, like, changing the way that novels work here in the, in the 1860s. Um, 
Demons isn't as groundbreaking as, as Crime and Punishment. It isn't as taught as Crime and Punishment. It isn't necessarily as well written, he says carefully, though we'll be coming back and modifying those comments later. And it definitely doesn't have the heavy, weighty, philosophical baggage of something like the Brothers Karamazov. So, you know, lots of people read Notes from Underground because it's quick and dirty and you can get these really interesting ideas really quickly. Lots of people like to read Crime and Punishment because it is extremely well written and extremely tight. Lots of people like to read The Brothers Karamazov because it's this philosophically dense masterwork that the likes of which does not appear anywhere else in literature at all. Demons, though, is kind of a little of all of these things. But what I find so interesting about it is that where Notes from Underground is very much just a polemical work, where Dostoevsky is attacking Chernyshevsky and, like, ridiculing him basically to his face, and, you know, Chernyshevsky himself is utterly enraged at Dostoevsky's attack in Notes from Underground. It's this whole thing. We'll talk about it. Um, as much as, you know, as much as it's an important work, it's not an important work insofar as it is not considering all of the possibilities. Like, people like to read Notes from Underground in classrooms because, you know, students have a long enough attention span to deal with the 100 pages that Dostoevsky has on offer here, where they simply don't for the 500 or 600 pages that, you know, you have to invest in demons. Um, demons would not take an entire semester to read. It would take maybe half a semester, maybe a little bit less than that, which is why I'm treating it the way that I am. Um, but if you're going to spend an entire you know, semester talking about Dostoevsky and his ideas, usually you want to do it in the Brothers Karamazov, because that's where those ideas are at their richest and their most full. Demons is not that. Demons has so much more in common with something like Gogol's Dead Souls, the, the kind of comedic black humor of the Inspector General, or, you know, any of these sort of Russian farces that you, you kind of run across, and that Dostoevsky dearly loved. Um, at the same time, though, it is heartfelt. It is more robust and richer than what you will find in Notes from the Underground, or for that matter, kind of a lot richer than what you find in Crime and Punishment. Crime and Punishment is limited to one person's perspective. Demons is an ensemble piece. It's got dozens of characters, all of which are equally important, with some few exceptions. It is very much about the conflicts, not just within, you know, these, these Russian nihilists, but between the older generation and the new generation, which Dostoevsky himself very keenly felt in the 1860s and 1870s. Demons is in many ways more personal more powerful and better developed than many of his other works that deal with the same subjects. If you are interested in Ivan Karamazov's intellectual demons, if you are interested in why Raskolnikov, you know, decides to murder someone, the sort of process by which he becomes the, the madman that he inflicts upon himself, if you want to see what the underground man from Notes from Underground does when he is in his group of similarly minded radicals, that's what Demons is. Demons is about radical intellectuals, the youth of the 1860s Russia, and how their organizations and their ideals and their utopian vision for, you know, the universe really turns out when given its opportunity. Demons is about people failing to live up to their own ideas and letting their ideas very much carry, away, carry themselves away, which is kind of why I love it. 
also because the voices are so excellent and like we've talked a little bit about the the Bakhtin's polyphonic novel idea as applied to Dostoevsky and I gotta tell you like as much as the Brothers Karamazov does this really well and we looked at a lot of important polyphonic characters and moments in the Brothers Karamazov Demons is the novel with the best voices in my opinion like bar none no, you know, once we once we get into it, it will become incredibly obvious how how powerful Dostoevsky's voices just shine through this book. Like again, even compared to the Brothers Karamazov, we are going to be reckoning with a lot more characters to keep track of in Demons, and so, the way that you can keep track of them, the way that they can be identified, is through the voices. Um, which is part of the reason why I'm sticking with Peter and Volokonsky's translation on this one. I don't think the voices shine through nearly as well as they do in Garnett. Maybe that's artificial. I don't know. I don't actually care. Um, what I can say is that Peter and Volokonsky's translation is what very much made me fall in love with demons in the first place. So yeah, it's what we're sticking with here. Um, but the fact of the matter is, Demons is a work rooted in its own time in a way that the Brothers Karamazov kind of isn't as well. The Brothers Karamazov is this massive philosophical masterpiece, but the ideas that are being kicked around in it are kind of eternal. Um, they're, all of the characters are dealing with these huge questions of God and God's goodness, and while that is a debate and a conversation very typical of the 1860s and 1870s in Russian intellectual discourse, it is not isolated to those to that moment in time in the way that the discussions happening in demons are the brothers karamazov transcends its time it's what makes it a great work it's why so many scholars return to it because it is evergreen when you look at it that way demons is very much instead a snapshot of a moment it is where the russian intellectual community was in the 1860s specifically where Dostoevsky was part of some kind of intellectual elder guard that the young people of today were not paying attention to or listening to because they were old fuddy-duddies who did not appreciate all of the new ideas that were being kicked around, even though Dostoevsky kind of really did. That was his whole thing. Um, likewise, it is very much about the current events happening in Russia at that moment. Like, the Brothers Karamazov has its fair share of references to contemporary issues and ideas going around in, in Russia at the time. Um, the trial of, of uh, Mikhail, especially, in the Brothers Karamazov, or Dmitri, I should say. Um, the trial of Dmitri is very much based on many of the, the sort of public trials that Dostoevsky was witnessing in the latter part of the 1860s and 1870s. But Demons is legit a rip-from-the-headline story of this young intellectual um, named Nechev, who we will talk about much more extensively as we go. Um, what I want to emphasize, though, is that Dostoevsky is very much trying to capture both the zeitgeist of his moment, the this is what the Russian intellectual discussion and debate and conflict looks like here at the end of the 1860s, as well as kind of retroactively explain. Like, we have talked about Dostoevsky again in many different ways, and I emphasized in our last series especially that he was kind of a hardcore conservative. 
Um, he has this idea that like Russia is supposed to lead the, the Slavic nations into the future, that Russia is, you know, the national home of orthodoxy and therefore the true church. And, you know, they will usher in Christ's truth and they have this unique national vision. Like it, it's kind of creepy when you talk about it in the 20th and 21st century. And especially in light of the fact that I was talking about the brothers Karamazov at the same time as Putin was declaring war on Ukraine and we had had to kind of have this conversation about like what does Russian nationalism actually look like you know would Dostoevsky be one of the the sort of aggressors in this situation um and while I don't think that that is a terribly cut and dry discussion to have I did very much land on the side that you know Dostoevsky would not condone at all what Pushkin is or what Putin is doing sorry Getting all these Russian names straight is going to be a little difficult in this series, I suspect. Um, but yes, I don't think Dostoevsky would at all have countenanced what Putin is doing. And if Putin has rejected Dostoevsky's advice, then we are free to, you know, consider him our culture more than that he is the Russians, at least in their current iteration. Um, but that's kind of also what I want to talk about here. Like... When we talk about Dostoevsky, we usually talk about him as a conservative. I want to talk about Dostoevsky in the world of liberalism at this particular moment in Russian history. Because as much as Dostoevsky is a conservative, he, has, he is and has always been an apologist for radicalism. He identifies with, empathizes with, and admires many of his intellectual rivals. And he goes to great pains in all of his work to characterize them carefully, to humanize them. Like what you have to keep in mind is that here in the 1860s, it is real easy for the world to get super polemical, super polarized. The conservatives in favor of the monarchy and in favor of this Russian, you know, like salvific figure before the Slavic nations had nothing to do with these radical intellectuals, these dangerous young men with their crazy mad ideas breaking down all of the important things in society. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were just maniacs, according to many of the conservatives, many of the established figures in the Russian world literary, like in the civil service, you name it. Dostoevsky was, in some sense, trying to make a space for appreciating their ideas, and at the very least their passion, even as he recognized the great danger that those ideas would bring them to. Dostoevsky was always sympathetic to the radical left in Russia, even as he criticized and even condemned them. And in order to get that part of what he's doing to to recognize demons in its own proper context we need to not just talk about the novel this time we need to talk about the ideas we need to talk about what dostoevsky's world looked like in the 1860s that brought him up to this discussion in demons and that means that we have a pretty natural complement like i said if demons is only going to take you half of a semester to read if not less then you gotta fill up the rest of the semester with other readings. And as much as that could be another Dostoevsky novel, and yeah, it would be fun to do Crime and Punishment and Demons back-to-back, -back, I think the smart play for us, if only because it's something that I want to do, is to make a deep, involved study of the intellectual world that contributed to the nihilistic fervor and madness that Dostoevsky is depicting in 
careful, compassionate strokes and condemning all at the same time in Demons. Like, you can get away without doing this in the Brothers Karamazov. Most of the discussion can happen right on its face with the occasional side note or footnote. But in Demons, it's much harder to do that. In Demons, you've got to appreciate the fact that there is a whole complicated political and ideological landscape that Dostoevsky is simultaneously trying to show us and also trying to condemn on some basic moral level. So that's what we're going to do. In this series, we are not just going to look at Dostoevsky's demons, though that is going to be what we're building up to. What we are going to look at is the entire world of Russian nihilism as it is understood by Dostoevsky and as he is wrestling with it in its own time. And in order to talk about that, we're going to look at the masterpieces of the time. Like, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the articles, and I'm not going to, you know, invite us to read a whole bunch of, like, Russian periodicals from the time. I don't think most of them are translated into English, and those that are would be kind of difficult to, to sort of parse through, and I don't even know necessarily which essays that I would look at, though I'm getting a better sense of it thanks to, you know, reading my way through Joseph Frank's uh, biography of Dostoevsky. What I do know is that there are some pretty complicated dynamics at stake here. Um, so usually when I do one of these intro lectures, I tend to focus on the reasons why I'm doing this series, like why I want to talk about this particular idea. I think that's pretty straightforward in the sense of Dostoevsky. We've already talked about him. I widely consider him one of the greatest novelists who ever lived, if not the greatest novelist who ever lived. This is one of my favorite books ever, period, the end. Like... I'll need to make a lot of arguments about this. Um, likewise, I think I've made my case pretty effectively for why in order to understand demons properly and in order to, you know, study demons properly, we should be looking at the greater world of Russian intellectualism at this particular moment in time. So instead, I want to do a little bit of the historical background here. Take us from a very baseline knowledge of history to exactly what's going on in 1860 when this whole story really starts to begin. Because that's what this series is going to be. We are going to look at one decade. Like, one decade in Russian letters and literature. We're not even going to read all the important works of the time. We're just going to kind of, like, pick and choose our way to set the stage for understanding demons. But we are going to look at the Russian 1860s, in short. Like, from 1861, with the publication of uh, Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, or Fathers and Children, as it is alternately translated, we are going to look at Chernyshevsky's like, groundbreaking landmark novel, What is to be Done, as a sort of representative of the ideological opponents of Dostoevsky. Like, this is the novel that got Dostoevsky the most worked up in the 1860s. Um, and his rebuttal to What is to be Done is literally Notes from Underground. So we're going to read that as well because you know it's kind of way past time for me to discuss notes from underground on this series and then finally we're going to look at demons itself published in 1871 after a jump of probably five or six years um and it is worth noting that again like if there is a logical extra book to add to this curriculum it would be crime and punishment published in 1866 it is the logical sort of like last or the last connection point between Notes from Underground and Chernyshevsky on the one hand and de uh, Demons on the other. Uh, but like I said, I don't want to 
you know, get too deep into Dostoevsky on this one. We will probably end up like spending a lecture just talking about notes or uh, talking about crime and punishment. Um, I haven't quite yet plotted this, this course start to finish, but I think we have enough time that I can basically burn a lecture to just talk about crime and punishment, even though I'm not going to assume anybody's read it. Um, and talk about sort of what it means for the 1860s and, and how it is sort of the connecting tissue between Notes from Underground and, and uh, Demons especially. Um, but again, we've, we've got a lot to do before we get to that point. For now, what I want to do is set the stage. Again, we've got a lot of sort of works to look at, but what's really important for our understanding is not necessarily the literary merits or, or even the literary world so much as the intellectual circumstances that allow and bring these works about. So with that in mind, we have to talk about basically how we got here, how we get to the 1860s and why it is such an interesting and such a tumultuous moment in Russian history. Um, and in order to talk about that, we kind of have to look at both sides of this discussion. The Russian side and what makes Russia unique in this whole discussion, as well as the European side and where we are in European politics and identity and, and you know, the, the whole European intellectual world at large at this point. Um, and to start this story, I want to start with Peter the Great. Um, this goes back quite a ways. We're talking about like the 1710s and 1720s here. So we are at the very beginning of the Enlightenment, the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, we are talking about like the sort of crux of the scientific revolution. Um, it is a great age in Europe. This is the age of Louis XIV building Versailles and declaring that he is the state, sort of announcing to the world that he was this great political figure and wielded near absolute power, not because of some kind of like inscrutable you know biblical basis but instead because he was an absolute monarch ordained by god this was the appropriate rational way of governing the world and basically he just does what he wants what are you going to do about it peter the great in all likelihood admired the crap out of this kind of ruling style and peter the great very much wanted to take russia which at this point was very much just this backwater like superstitious nation of you know weirdo christians who didn't get along with the rest of the european world he wanted to make russia relevant and sort of single-handedly peter the great and his successors including catherine the gate catherine the great quite a few years afterwards basically did just that they started building universities in Russia. They started building major cities like Petersburg, in addition to sort of urbanizing and, and making Moscow scientifically relevant. Um, he started a whole bunch of publications. He basically took this place that was just gray area on a map and turned it into a part of the European world, a place that other Europeans wanted to go, wanted to spend time, a nation that could compete with the rest of the European world, both militarily, industrially, economically, and intellectually, he wanted that to be his legacy. He wanted that world. And again, I want to stress, in the 18th century, this wasn't necessarily a perfectly noble or altruistic thing to do. In the 18th century, there are a ton of monarchs who are sort of looking at Louis XIV and his, you know, absolute rule over his country and basically saying, I want to do that too. I want to be that powerful. I want to have that much wealth. I want to have that kind of control over my people. 
so on the one hand, I suspect that Peter the Great was sort of thinking about the power and the opulence and the riches of Louis the Fourteenth, as well as the sort of widespread reforms of Louis the Fourteenth and, and the other European nations at this point. I suspect that he was interested in the scientific world, but probably primarily had the political uh, gains in mind. At any rate, his reforms are hugely long-lasting and hugely important to our story. Because what I want to stress about Russia is, much like America, it was a very young nation thrust into modernity with kind of no preparation. And consequently, Russia and the U.S. at this particular moment in history, in the you know mid-18th century and heading into the 19th century where we will be spending most of our discussion, both of these nations are basically the Wild West of you know Western society. They are lawless. They are basically just kind of making things up as they go along. They do not have the storied history and culture of some, some nation like France or England or you know even Germany to some degree. Um, they are instead making a name for themselves and feeling very self-conscious about the fact that they are in need of making a name for themselves. Russia wants to stand on the European stage with the big boys and be every bit as important a player as France, Germany, England, etc. Likewise, the United States, their situation is a little bit different because at the moment they're still colonies, but as they develop into a nation in the 19th century, they too feel this incredible obligation to figure out where they stand relevant to the other European powers, which they're kind of not, but also kind of want to be. Now, that said, in the 19th century, obviously everything changes with the rise of Napoleon. Like, yes, we've talked about the French Revolution. I'm going to assume some baseline knowledge about the French Revolution here. What I want to emphasize is that in the 19th century, everything changes for Europe and everything changes for Russia in particular. Because when Napoleon starts taking over Europe, he starts imposing reforms and changes everywhere that he goes. Um, and this is going to have long-lasting repercussions well into the future, stuff that we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, but importantly... The Napoleonic Wars represent this first time in quite a while, or at least first time in remembered history, um, that like all of Europe was both kind of threatened, but also kind of unified against a common foe. And as much as the French Revolution is sort of making a whole lot of citizens of various nations, you know, sit up and take notice about how things might be different if they just, you know, guillotined a couple monarchs or something... At the end of the day, all of those same monarchs are absolutely running scared when Napoleon comes to town and starts taking over their cities and starts imposing reforms from without. Napoleon is a straight-up threat. And yet, at the same time, so many people at this particular moment in history admire him. And you can't talk about one part of this you know, incredibly important historical figure without talking about the other side of his character. Yes, Napoleon is a tyrant. Yes, he is a single-minded, driven individual. Yes, he is, in many ways, causing some of the greatest catastrophes and losses of human life in uh, history up until this point. But he is also a symbol. A symbol of intellectual triumph, of personal triumph over a world that has grown increasingly indifferent to the individual. 
Napoleon is, for many, a hero. And we need to stress that, especially from the Russian perspective. Because in the 19th century, you are going to find a lot of literature that speaks very highly of Napoleon, even if it is theoretically written by one of Napoleon's you know, intellectual adversaries or one of his political adversaries. You are going to see the likes of Balzac talking about how Napoleon is sort of like this this model character, this, this stand-up figure for, you know, doing things your way and not giving a crap about what other people have to say about it. You're going to have Nietzsche sort of recognizing Napoleon as like the great symbol of the uberman, the, the person who is not bound by morality, but instead just reshaping the world according to the strength of his will. And you're going to see it in the Russians as well. Um, Dostoevsky specifically refers to Napoleon in Crime and Punishment when Raskolnikov is trying to think of the great man stepping over the boundaries of, of morality. And Raskolnikov chooses this example carefully because this is exactly the kind of conversation that he was having with his, his fellow utopian socialists back in the Petrushevsky circle, as well as the kind of discussion people are having about Napoleon here in the 1860s with the likes of Chernyshevsky and Pissarov. Napoleon represents this kind of radical individualism, this indifference to convention and to typical morality. And Napoleon's success, the fact that Napoleon takes over all of these countries and institutes reforms and radically changes the way they are, often for the better, especially for the people at the bottom of the uh, sort of economic hierarchy, Napoleon is a hero. He is what people want to be. But the danger is often overlooked here, something that Dostoevsky wants to sort of bring to the fore. But the other side of this Napoleonic discussion, like as much as he is this sort of symbol in you know European intellectualism for unfettered, unbound individuality, overcoming all obstacles, you know, capital G greatness in some sense, you know, in the same way that Napoleon himself envisioned himself as a latter-day Alexander the Great. Dostoevsky also is going to be looking at Napoleon from the Russian perspective, which is kind of unique, because the Russians, at least as far as they're concerned, are the guys who beat him. Like, the other version of this story of Napoleon running rampant through Europe, taking over every nation he finds along the way, is that it ultimately comes down to Russia to beat him. And yes, I know we in America love to talk about, like, never attack, you know, Russia in the winter. And yes, this was obviously a huge flaw in Napoleon's plan and kind of critical to the Russian, you know, counteroffensive against Napoleon. But what I want to emphasize is for Europe at this moment and for Russia at this moment here in the 1810s and 20s, what we need to remember is that here is this fledgling nation, this, this sort of, you know, backwater, I want to seat, seat at the adult's table, little kid of a nation, basically cobbled into existence by Peter and Catherine the Great over the last hundred years, and all of a sudden, Napoleon is running rampant through Europe, taking over Austria, taking over Prussia, taking over Italy, taking over Spain, taking over all of the civilized nations, all of those nations who would logically be, you know, at the adults' table already. Those nations who could theoretically be rivals to Napoleonic power, and he is just plowing right through them. The Habsburgs can't do anything about Napoleon. Like, admittedly, there's one false start, but then he just, like, squishes them and keeps moving. Only Russia stops Napoleon. 
and again, some of this is purely a matter of like the, the coincidence of the time or the landscape or factors completely outside of Tsar Alexander's control, whatever you want to, you know, attribute it to it. And again, if you've read War and Peace, obviously Tolstoy has this entire diatribe that he repeats, repeats like twice over the course of the novel about how really there's no intellectual guidance to history and all of it is just accident and dumb luck and none of these people are actually any smarter than anybody else and they're all just like at the whim of fate. You know, as much as that is true, and as much as I want to respect that, especially because it is a distinctly Russian response, and a distinctly Russian response of ex exactly this particular moment in history that we want to talk about in our discussions, what I want to stress is that as far as everyone was concerned, as far as, you know, France, Germany, England, all of these nations looking on Russia and saying, oh, shit, these guys are ready to sit at the adults' table. They are able to take out the greatest military mind of our generation. They are able to put to a stop the greatest military engine that this world could produce at this moment. They clearly are a force to be reckoned with. You can no longer consider the Russians some sort of backwater nation, some sort of impotent or unimportant, you know, like pretender to European power and authority. No, they are here. They have arrived. And whether or not that's fair, whether or not that's appropriate, whether or not that's historically accurate, I do not care because that's the message that everybody takes home. Russia itself believes in this message is convinced that it has finally become time for the Russians to stand up and assume their power, assume their role on the European stage. They are ready to play in the big boys club. They are ready to be a diplomatic and economic power. The time has come. And there's kind of a lot of pressure as a consequence here in Russia. Like, on the one hand, yes, there's a lot of pressure on the political leaders, and we will see the czars sort of, like, out of the corner of our eye throughout much of this discussion, um, kind of reacting and, and getting defensive and, and getting a sort of complicated relationship to the other European powers as well as to their own people. Um, on the other hand, we definitely need to stress that for the people themselves, for intellectuals like Dostoevsky and his literary circle, as well as for, you know you know, the, the sort of civic engineers and industrialists and, you know, everybody who is basically working to make Russia great. This is their moment. They are living in Russia's golden age in some sense. That's what they believe. That's how they are acting. And importantly, the question of what does Russia become at this point is at the forefront of everybody's mind. Because that's the real trick here. Russia isn't ready to play or to sit at the adults' table. It has only been sitting, you know, in the room for the last hundred years since Peter the Great uh, instituted his reforms. In many ways, they aren't ready. Like, yes, you've got major urban centers like Moscow and St. Petersburg, but the rest of the Russian world is kind of barely more advanced than the medieval world that they kind of just got pulled out of by Peter the Great. There's still serfs, there's still peasants, there's still lordship feudalism in the same sense as we saw in the medieval world, although, you know, marginally different thanks to the Russian organization. If you leave those major urban centers, it gets real backwoodsy real fast. 
in the same way that it does when you hang out in America in the 19th century. As much as there are these massive expectations and pretensions to being a major civilized power, most of Russia isn't going to see that. And that means that the big question on everybody's mind in Russia at this particular moment is what do we do about the peasants? How do we deal with the serfs? Because they are effectively slaves at this point. Like, serfdom is essentially slavery. It's a little bit different. There are, you know, minor distinctions here. But we are dealing with the same sort of, like, tenant kind of serfdom that we saw where it's like, okay, so, you know, you own this land, but technically you have to, like, give all of its its income to your lord because he's technically the owner of the land. You're just kind of working it for him. You are effectively just a tenant farmer here. Um, this is how the Russian gentry, the Russian you know, the aristocracy viewed the average person in Russia. And the fact that the Russians are starting to develop a robust middle class, now there are all of these bourgeois Russians, these intellectual or educated Russians, you know, sort of at odds with the old school monarchy and also the, the you know, serfdom peasant class. This means that Russia, again, is very unsteady in itself. It doesn't know where it belongs. The czar is in charge. We have the civil service, which is basically where all of those people with titles and nobility and old school land ownership end up wandering. But at the same time, serfdom is very much an obsolete kind of social organization and everybody knows it and everybody knows that it's just a matter of time until the thing falls apart and all of these intellectuals are like, we need to end serfdom right now. Like, this needs to be the first thing that we do. This, will, this is the difference between us and all those civilized European powers. And yet the czar, the, you know, aristocracy, they don't see it that way. They're reluctant to give up their power, their authority. And some part of Russian identity is still rooted in this kind of power and authority. Like, as much as, you know, we here in the 20th century or 21st century now don't have any respect for monarchs or this idea of a kind of benevolent dictator, we need to emphasize that, like, half of what you will read from especially conservative factions in the 19th century Russian world still look at the Tsar as their father, still are sympathetic to him. To the point that in the 1860s, when somebody actually attempts an assassination attempt on the Tsar, everyone is like floored by this. They can't believe that this would happen. Who in God's name would attempt to attack the Tsar? The Tsar is the father of his people. All Russia loves the Tsar. This should be without question. But here in the 1860s, thanks to all of those radicals, thanks to all those revolutionaries, that's not true anymore. But we're getting ahead of ourselves again. Here in the 1820s, in the wake of Napoleon's failed uh, attack on Russia, now that Russia has proved that it is ready to sit at the big boy's table, the big question on everybody's mind is, what do we do about the serfs? How do we reorganize our society? Because this is not the way that a civilized power in Europe is supposed to look anymore. And at the same time, we're seeing some of the greatest literary minds of Russian history coming to the fore. This is the age of Pushkin. This is the age of Gogol. And as much as, you know, I will happily say that Dostoevsky is the greater artist of the three of them and that Dostoevsky and Tolstoy can leave Pushkin and Gogol in the dust, I should stress that Dostoevsky would disagree with me. Um, Dostoevsky absolutely adored Pushkin. 
Um, and frequently got into fights with people if like people would be like, oh, why do we need Pushkin when, you know, instead people are starving? Like clearly bread and boots is more important than Pushkin and Dostoevsky would like get into fights with them. Um, likewise, Dostoevsky absolutely idolized Gogol and for good reason. Gogol's amazing. One of these days we're going to read Dead Souls in this lecture series. It is one of the most laugh out loud hilarious works of literature I have ever read, bar none, like on par with with like comic greats like Moliere and, and, and Don Quixote. Like, I can't even... One of these days we'll get around to it. Um, but what I want to stress is that this was another important cultural moment in Russia's development. Like, now they had great artists. Now they had great writers. Now they had, you know, great intellectual insights. A national culture. A national identity. The likes of which should rival France and Germany and again all of these other nations in Europe but at the same time many of the thinkers in Russia are looking at the way that Russia is backward the fact that they still have serfs the fact that they still worship their czar the fact that they are still rooted in these these sorts of superstitious religious traditions and you know lots of people in, in peasant countries or countryside still believe in like gremlins and and you know demons and all sorts of supernatural beings that have long since been disproven by contemporary science and contemporary contemporary intellectualism russians looking at their own nation are on the one hand kind of embarrassed by it and kind of also excited about it kind of excited about the fact that they are looking at the world in a new distinct way that consequently russia will be the next leader. That it will be the Russians who are the next Napoleons. They are uniquely positioned in European affairs to become the next great power. And any one of these Russian intellectuals, Russian bourgeois, any one of these people could become the next great leader, the next great ideologue. And I want to stress, this is kind of how all of Europe is feeling at this particular moment in history. In the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, again, Napoleon's reforms kind of take over, and we see an age of revolution in Europe. For 20, 30 years, up until the 1850s, we see revolution after revolution after revolution, kind of modeled after the French Revolution in an attempt to get rid of all of these monarchies and, and you know, unjust power structures throughout Europe, motivated by a stream of intellectual philosophy, you know, motivated in part by the left Hegelians on the one hand, as they sort of grow into Marxists on the other, as well as just widespread dissatisfaction with the underclasses and dealing with the Industrial Revolution. Like, again, you talk about Europe in the first half of the 19th century, and it is, again, revolution after revolution culminating in 1848 when literally every nation on on Europe ends up in the middle of a revolution at some point during the year probably the most notable of which is the german revolution like the the habsburgs are revolted against and the germans try and chuck them out in 1848 rather unsuccessfully although quite a few reforms do in fact take place in order to make sure that the peasants and the intellectuals are not on the same side but this is very much the sort of upheaval that it's going to just usher in the age of bismarck in the next couple of decades and basically turn germany from the you know fragmented holy roman empire into an actual state led by the prussian or or the prussian political forces the world is ripe for change, in short. And 18, it is probably no coincidence that in 1848 we also get one of the most 
important and controversial political tracts in the history of the world, specifically Marx's The Communist Manifesto, this becomes just another rallying cry for the age. And then Russia is definitely feeling this. Russia is not undergoing the revolutions the way that these other European powers have. Remember, Russia never lost to Napoleon, and consequently Napoleon was never able to sort of implement his reforms and his, you know, political upheaval there. They are sensitive to the French Revolution especially, and many Russian citizens especially, again, those sort of shiftless and not quite comfortable Russian intellectual or intellectuals, the, the educated bourgeoisie who really don't have a place in Russian society at this point, they are absolutely reading everything that they possibly can get their hands on that's coming out of like socialist or, or utopian enlightenment France or England or Germany or even the United States if they can get a hold of it. This stuff is catnip to them. But I also don't want to kind of gloss over the thing that I just mentioned, namely there's no place for the intellectual here in this world. Like... This is something that we have encountered a couple times in this lecture series, but it's, you know, always a little muted and always kind of under the radar. Here in the mid-19th century, there is a whole lot of education and not a whole lot of use for it. More people are going to college than are using their college education. And in Russia especially, there isn't the sort of infrastructure that would support a bunch of university graduates. So all of these people are coming out of seminary or coming out of university and they're not getting jobs. Like maybe they get some crappy backwater post in the civil service where they will be, you know, ruled over by people with not even half their education. A bunch of people who are landed gentry who, you know, received this appointment by fiat that were like given special attention by the czar or any one of his subsidiaries. They didn't do a damn thing to deserve where they are. And consequently, these people are coming out of college and saying, you know, I am 10 times as qualified as the guy who is like three levels ahead of me. And for some reason, he's the one telling me what to do. These young people are extremely discontent they are very highly educated they are staying incredibly aware of the intellectual discussions coming out of france and germany etc and yet they have nothing to do with this they literally are sitting there with this fancy education with these degrees you know some of them are working at translation or they're like trying to publish their own ideas in any number of russian publications that are cropping up at this particular moment in history and there's, that's it. Like, that's their life. They, they literally have nothing else to do with it. Some of them are able to, you know, make families and make lives for themselves, but it's kind of rare, more often than not, all of these young university-educated people are homeless or destitute or basically just scraping by. You know, publishing is not a terribly lucrative game here in the 19th century Russian world, as, as Dostoevsky will make very clear to us. So these people are, for the most part, kind of shiftless they don't know what to do with themselves they are unmoored from the very same history that they are so excited about and therefore they are enthusiastic and have nothing to do with their enthusiasm it goes nowhere to no economic purpose they are frustrated by their own education in some cases 
Which is where I want to kind of switch from the big grand sweeping statements about Russian culture and Russian world and the European world that's influencing this. And instead I want to look specifically at Dostoevsky and his own career. Because he is very much just arriving perfectly prepackaged to be one of these sort of dissolute and unplaced Russian intellectuals. Dostoevsky was born in the 19 or the 1820s, um, had a pretty tumultuous childhood and surprising literary success from a pretty early age. In the 1840s, he published Poor Folk, which was immediately recognized by the greatest Russian critic of the time, Belinsky, as being the new, you know, Russian realism, a sort of like realistic novel to answer the new groundbreaking realistic novels that are that are coming out of France and Germany and England, etc. Um, here in the 1830s and 40s, um, Dostoevsky was absolutely heralded as being this brand new thinker and a distinctly Russian one at that. Now I've read Poor Folk a couple of times. It's fine. It definitely doesn't have, you know, immediate literary classic slash masterpiece written on it by my reckoning. But you've also got to recognize the fact that, you know, this is real early in the realistic movement. Um, this is well before like any of Dickens truly great works make them make their way over to Russia. Um, the sort of classic example that, that Dostoevsky is working from at this point that he refers to often is the work of George Sand um, over in over in France. It was a big deal, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, like, as far as, you know, famous realistic novels are concerned, it usually doesn't make the curriculum over here in the States. Um, so, Poor Folk is a big deal, but as much as Dostoevsky is this, you know, immediately feted, immediately, like, celebrated Russian writer, he very much disappoints everybody immediately after that. Like, Dostoevsky's second published work is The Double which is just weird. Like, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's kind of like a surreal description of this guy who like his doppelganger shows up and basically like identities thefts him by like stealing his job and stealing his contacts and being like way better than he is at all of his, his other tasks. Um, anyone who's read both Dostoevsky and Gogol can see that Dostoevsky is kind of like borrowing a lot of the surreal notes from works like Gogol's uh, The Nose, where it's like this this petty bureaucrat who is just like facing a situation that is completely out of his ken. Um, the double is weird. I can understand why Russian writers at the time did not care for it. I don't care for it, especially myself. But what I want to stress is that this was a complete left turn as far as the Russian intellectual world was concerned. Here was Dostoevsky, the new great realistic writer, and his literal second book doesn't have a smack of realism about it. It is total romantic nonsense. It is fancy. It is, you know, just silly and absurd. It is a love letter to Gogol instead of Pushkin. It is, you know, not emphasizing some kind of radical reform for, for underprivileged classes. Like Dostoevsky immediately got kind of booted out of his own literary circles, which was kind of a problem for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, I should emphasize that because Dostoevsky had this great success early on in his career, he is already in contact with many of the other great Russian writers of the age. And I should definitely give special attention to Turgenev, because Turgenev is literally the first person we're going to read, and Dostoevsky's, Dostoevsky's relationship with Turgenev is going to be informative both for the creation of Fathers and Sons, Turgenev's own novel about nihilism that literally coined the term, as well as a lot of stuff that happens in 
and demons that I don't want to spoil because it's awesome. Um, but suffice it to say that Dostoevsky and Turgenev initially got on famously, and then it turns out that kind of they hated each other shortly after that. Um, Frank definitely chalks this up to the fact that like Turgenev had a very different disposition than Dostoevsky. Both of them were very interested in the peasant class. Like, again, in both Poor Folk and Turgenev's breakout classic, The Hunting Sketches, these are both stories about poor people. Like, poor bourgeois, in Dostoevsky's case, more than poor peasants, but both of them cared deeply for the people. The trouble is, Turgenev was more of a sentimentalist. Like, The Hunting Sketches are picturesque, stories about peasant life and the way that many of the romantic writers of the 19th century, like Goethe, for example, uh, loved to talk about how simple and honest and, and plain-spoken and good the peasants were, but that's also kind of like just really condescending way of saying that, you know, like, they are better than us because we, you know, they don't understand all of the things that we have to deal with. Dostoevsky was much more realistic about the peasants. But at the end of the day, Dostoevsky, too, was very moved by their situation. Dostoevsky, above all, wanted to see the peasants liberated, wanted to see the serfs of Russia made free. And consequently, he joined up with some pretty radical elements of the time, a number of other writers and intellectuals that would later become known as the Petrushevsky Circle. They were... I wouldn't call them revolutionaries necessarily. There was a sort of secondary group of Petrushevskyites, which may have, which probably did include Dostoevsky, the Spechnev Circle, which may have actually made some actual plans to like circulate subversive pamphlets and, and possibly undermine the, the czarist regime. But the Petrushevsky Circle in general were a whole bunch of like relatively smart, college-educated young men and women and the fact that it included any women at all was in, in itself kind of radical at this particular moment in history. Um, all of which were kind of like just debating at long length. Like imagine you're, you know, uh, wherever you went to college or wherever you're going to college, all of like the angry, grumpy, like possibly, you know, the, the actual activists on campus, but also very possibly just people with a lot of big mouths and, and lots of hot air to shoot around talking about these big ideas that really on the one hand they kind of don't understand but on the other hand they're like really really passionate about it and they know more than you do so you kind of like are okay with this and respect them and maybe even look up to them like this is what Dostoevsky and the Petrushevsky circle were doing they were reading the newest books coming out of France, like Charles Fourier's utopian socialism discussion of how, like, all we need is to create one phalanstery, which is effectively, like, the same thing as what we might call a commune today. Only Fourier has it, like, charted out, like, by architectural, you know, specifics. And, you know, every detail of the community has been discussed extensively in, in, his, in his missive. And the Russians are absolutely eating this up. The Petrushevskyites are absolutely eating this up. They are convinced that Russia is the perfect place to implement this new utopian socialist perspective. That all of those untamed peasant communities are ripe for conversion to a phalanstery. That they are perfectly able to become these sort of self-sufficient, totally separated communities apart from the Russian regime. And so quite a few people are saying we need to start implementing that here. This is uniquely fertile ground for utopian socialist ideas. 
Likewise, these people are also kicking around the, the relatively new Hegelian ideas. Like, again, I don't want to, you know, champion Marx here because as far as all of my Dostoevsky reading is concerned, like, he didn't give two craps about Marx. Um, Marx was not a big deal in Russia at this particular time. Give it time, though. We will get our moment. Um, but we are seeing the ideas of Ludwig Feuerbach, a sort of Hegelian atheist who is arguing along the lines of, you know, Enlightenment principles and Hegelian dialectic that actually Christianity is fundamentally atheistic. Like his famous book, The Essence of Christianity, literally has the tagline, like the famous quote, the essence of Christianity is atheism. Um, obviously, this is kind of nonsense, and I didn't much care for the essence of Christianity, but I cannot deny that it was incredibly influential. And in the 19th century, especially with the likes of Schleiermacher sort of criticizing the Bible and criticizing Christianity, Dostoevsky and the Russians are all about this sort of Feuerbachian rejection of Christian superstition. They are convinced that in order to raise the peasants up and raise the serfs out of their destitute condition, they have to educate them. They have to dispel the religion and superstition of Christianity, make them keenly aware of an atheist enlightenment principles. And this includes Dostoevsky at this point. Like, this is before Dostoevsky's great conversion. We will get to that. The Petrushevsky circle is convinced that we've got to get rid of Christianity because it is a, you know, hierarchical system, you know, upholding czarist uh, in unjust power. We need to build these new phylanteries according to, you know, the Fourierist principle. Um, this is what the world needs to look like, and Russia is especially fertile ground for doing this. And at that particular moment, as they are starting to put perhaps their first subversive, you know, plans into action, the Tsar busts up the Petrushevsky circle and arrests all of those secret inner circle Speshnevites, including Dostoevsky himself. And I believe it's 1850, Dostoevsky is in fact brought to the gallows, brought to, you know, execution, and spared at the very last minute and what could very well have been just a big dramatic sort of self-indulgent act on the part of the Tsar Nicholas at this particular moment in time who was kind of a bit of a drama queen. Um, but at any rate, Dostoevsky was sentenced to prison in, you know, Siberia for basically the next 10 years of his life. Um, he's not necessarily in prison all 10 of those years, but he is removed from the literary world. He is in literary exile for those 10 years. And while he is cut off from the intellectuals, he is also basically put cheek by jowl with the peasants. Because the Siberian prison where he's living is not just a place for political prisoners. There are a couple of those there, and honestly, Dostoevsky likes them even less than he likes the peasants. But the peasants themselves are just there. Peasants who are guilty of all sorts of crimes, thefts, murders, they have been accused unjustly in some cases. The Russian legal system has determined, for whatever reason, that they belong in jail. And Dostoevsky, ever the keen observer of human behavior, is watching them. He is watching as these peasants and these criminals are judging him, keeping away from him. He is keenly aware of his division from all of these peasants, how they refuse to associate or socialize with him. And thus Dostoevsky feels this sort of break with these people. And he is heartbroken by it. 
And what I want to stress is where so many of the intellectuals of the Russian world and so many of the intellectuals of the European world have this kind of cloying, sentimentalizing view of the peasants, where they, you know, admire them and they, they think that they're simple and, and honest. Dostoevsky does not believe any of these things because he spent five years spending time with these people, admiring them in some cases. And at the very least, recognizing what they were and what they weren't. Dostoevsky has no romantic illusions about the peasants because he knows what they are like. So when Tolstoy writes his peasant stories, he will often end with like, the heroic peasant dies for the sake of his master and the master learns a valuable lesson as in the story Master and Man. For Dostoevsky, this is never that simple. Peasants aren't just dumb. They are clever, and they are capable, and they are cunning in their own way. They just lack the education of all of these high-speaking people who have studied French and English and who spend all of their time talking about socialist utopias. The peasants are not just loving and faithful and true. Many of them are liars. Many of them are criminals. Many of them will steal at the drop of a hat. Some of them unrepentantly. Dostoevsky sees and recognizes all of these qualities because for him, the peasant has stopped being a theory and has started being people he actually knows and in some cases cares about. People who he has seen at their most intimate moments. People who he has celebrated with, even if they do not accept his, you know, company very often. So when Dostoevsky does in fact get out of jail, his view is radically changed. He has converted to Christianity because it is the only philosophical perspective that he can see that, you know, explains his experiences at this point. All of the high-minded ideals of utopian socialism do not describe the fundamental human evil or injustice or basic human greed that he sees on display in the jail all the time. He also recognizes that all of those people who he spent time with in the Petrushevsky circle were kind of talking out of their butt. They didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't know who they were talking about. They didn't appreciate what Russian-ness actually meant, how foreign to the soil a Fourier-style phylanstery would actually be. He recognizes that he was badly mistaken. And he repudiates his activities with the Petrushevsky and with the Spechnev circle especially. But, and I want to stress this, he understands why he believed those things. He was there for it. He knows those people in the Petrushevsky circle. He spent time talking to Sergeyev. He knows that these intellectuals, as much as they are idiots and failing to appreciate basically any of the realities of the world that they live in, they are coming from the right place. They want to help the peasants in the same way that Dostoevsky still does. That has not gone away. It's not like Dostoevsky went to jail and he's like, oh crap, these peasants are terrible, we should never have tried to save them. Not at all. If anything, Dostoevsky is more sympathetic, more empathetic with these people. He is just more realistic about them now. It is not so simple as erect this new, you know, society for them and they will, you know, immediately transform themselves and become a better group of people. No, he recognizes it's going to take work. And importantly for Dostoevsky, the first step in that work is to close the gap 
between the peasants and the moneyed classes, to close the gap between these educated bourgeoisie and the people who they claim to represent. And until they do, those educated bourgeois people are never going to be able to speak for the peasants, and the peasants are never going to listen to them. So all of these high-minded ideas for Dostoevsky are moot until that gap is closed. For Dostoevsky, the key idea here is that they are all one Russia. That whether or not they have a czar is kind of not the most important thing in Dostoevsky's mind, though he does support the czar as, as a rule. Um, what is most important is that this division between the middle class and the upper class on the one hand and the peasants on the other needs to be closed. They need to become one people again. One people under God, importantly, under this orthodox faith that unites them and to stop rejecting it out of some sort of false intellectual sense of advancement or progress. And then Dostoevsky is reintroduced to the literary society in Petersburg and Moscow and finds out that he has already been supplanted. Remember, Dostoevsky in the Petrushevsky circle was on the cutting edge of Russian liberalism. He was the big idea guy. He was amidst all of these revolutionaries and ideologues reading the freshest new ideas that are coming out of France and Germany and so on and so forth. And Dostoevsky's been away from that for like six or seven years, so he spends a good bit of his time trying to catch up. And when he does catch up, he realizes that the new version of Russian liberalism has kind of left him behind and not necessarily in a good way. The new big ideas coming out of Europe that apparently the new generation has latched onto are the Marxists. Not necessarily Marxism in its pure form, and again, Marx is not the big thinker here. Instead, it's the utilitarians that get kind of the most press, Bentham and Mill. Um, these are what the young Russians are reading nowadays, and very much emphasizing that if something does not have pure utilitarian purpose, it is not useful. And this is the thing that rankles Dostoevsky the most. All of these writers for new periodicals that Dostoevsky is now trying to get familiar with, talking about how they would rather have boots than Pushkin, and Dostoevsky cannot accept this. Because great art like Pushkin, great art like Gogol, great art like all of these writers and thinkers in Russia or elsewhere is the glue that holds the people together with the bourgeois, with the upper class. Art is how people are going to unify. So maybe it is not worth the same as a loaf of bread. It is still every bit as necessary as bread. And yet, here are these intellectuals saying... I will do without art. We need to destroy art, in fact. We need to destroy all of the organizations and institutions that are standing between this sort of utilitarian paradise where everybody has enough to eat and everybody is given the same means of production and capital is not hoarded or squandered, where it is not like kept out of reach of the people who in fact created it. Like all the same ideas that you see in Marx, it is in fact here. But what is distinct about the new young Russian ideologues and these young Russian radicals is that they are angry, that they are mean about it, that they are keen to destroy anything that gets between them and their objectives. And Dostoevsky catches on to this quickly. 
he recognizes that while on the one hand there are these ideologues who seem to be purely intellectual, like Chernyshevsky, who sees art as a means of creating this new ideological framework, he is recognizing that the ideas of someone like Chernyshevsky can be very easily turned to a destructive purpose. That as much as the Petrushevskyites had good intentions in mind, they too were sowing more discord than concord. They were causing more harm than good. And so Dostoevsky positions himself as a sort of elder statesman, a, an elder intellectual, a guide in some sense for young Russians, saying to them, I know where you are at. I was there myself. And I advise caution, care with every step you take. Not necessarily because you should be afraid of going to Siberia, but because at the end of the day, what I did was not helpful. And what you are doing is not helpful. Initially, Dostoevsky teams up with his brother Mikhail and they create a new periodical. Um, they start publishing their own ideas, specifically Dostoevsky's new novel, Humiliated and Insulted, which is kind of a big deal at the time, but not nearly as big a deal as later works like Crime and Punishment are going to be. Um, However, because of this particularly fraught moment in Russian history, again, with the Tsar feeling kind of self-conscious and being aware of these revolutionary activities in the vein of the Petrushevsky circle, but, you know, the new iterations that are coming to the fore, there's actually a pretty restrictive censorship policy in mind, and a lot of these articles are not making it past the censors. There is a complicated dance that has to be conducted in 19th century writing um, between the sort of publishing organizations like the Dostoevsky brothers and their, their periodical time um, or the Russian messenger or any of the other publications that are, are kind of a big deal at this particular moment in, in uh, the 1850s and 60s. Um, there has to be a way of communicating these new revolutionary radical ideas without necessarily attracting the attention of the censors or at least doing it with a certain amount of decorum. Um, and I want to stress this is the world that we're going to be talking about the most over the next couple of S lectures like this is the world that I want to stress is Dostoevsky's world of the intelligentsia in the 1860s so I want to stress for a couple of reasons that this is kind of an explosive era in Russian free speech in some senses there is more tolerance of multiple different viewpoints being exchanged via these periodicals than probably has ever been the case before in Russian history but at the same time, it is closely monitored. The censors are watching. So this discourse is civil. It is careful. And while there are absolutely vicious barbs exchanged by different writers, like Dostoevsky will absolutely pick fights with Chernyshevsky and vice versa, and you know Pisarev is going to like get mad at both of them, and you know when when all of these publications, Turgenev's Fathers and Children and Chernyshevsky's What Is to Be Done and Notes from an Underground are published, you better believe there's a whole bunch of vitriolic responses and reviews coming from you know rival publications, rival perspectives which is part of why I love this moment in history. It is colorful, and yet it is also small enough to keep track of. Um, what I want to stress for our purposes is that for Dostoevsky and for his, for the people he is sympathetic with, there are three perspectives that are now becoming dominant here in the 1860s. Dostoevsky's own sort of uh, 
quasi-conservative but sympathetic position to Russian intellectual radicalism, um, represented by the publication that he is increasingly publishing for, Katkov's uh, The Russian Messenger. The Russian Messenger is going to print Crime and Punishment, as well as, if I'm not mistaken, Demons in the Years to Come, um, after the closure of Dostoevsky's own epic, which kind of folds as soon as Mikhail Dostoevsky dies. Um, we also have the contemporary, which is where Chernyshevsky publishes his What is to be Done and is considered very much sort of the mouthpiece of the radical Russian intellectual, but is increasingly situated as kind of a moderate radicalism. Um, the com the complement to which is the Russian word, not to be confused with the Russian messenger. Um, the Russian word is where Pisarev, who is a younger writer even than Chernyshevsky and an angrier writer even than Chernyshevsky, tends to get his ideas published. And the Russian word isn't going to be around for too terribly long because the Tsar is going to shut that sucker down as soon as things get a little tense in Russia. But broadly speaking, I want to stress, Dostoevsky sees these three factions these three approaches to Russian intellectualism. One that is conservative but sympathetic to the intellectual, one which is radically intellectual and therefore, you know, dangerously liberal, but also largely has everyone's best intentions in mind, confused though it may be, and then the radical intellectual, the truly leftist, truly progressive, revolutionary perspective, which is too dangerous to allow its good intentions to, you know, apologize or excuse it any longer. And this is the crux of what I wanted to talk about. Like as much as sort of getting all of our, our you know, ducks in a row, getting all of our characters in order, setting the stage for the 1860s is gonna be a big part of like getting everybody on the same page and talking about these books carefully and, and intelligently. The other thing that I wanna stress here and the thing that really draws me to Demons and to Notes from Underground and probably to Dostoevsky's entire career more than any other writer is the fact that I see so many parallels between this world and my own. I have seen more than my fair share of angry young men caught up with their ideas, whether it is, you know, Nietzsche or like, Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club back in the 1990s, back when I was a teenager and getting carried away with big ideas before hopefully Dostoevsky brought me to my senses, or whether it's somebody like Jordan Peterson and you know Joe Rogan and pretty heavy duty conservative periodicals today on the internet, what I see is a lot of kind of educated discussion that doesn't really know what it's talking about. Like the Russians, here in the 2000s and 2020s, I see a lot of people who went to school because it became necessary in the 90s to get a college education, and yet not a lot of people using that college education. I see a ton of people who got very fancy degrees in psychology or philosophy or English literature or whatever working retail jobs, basically becoming commentators on the internet almost full time. This is what these people have kind of been reduced to because the world of business or the world of actual high intellectualism, you know, academia has been closed to them for one reason or another. And I consider myself among their number. I'm an adjunct professor. I do not have a PhD. I am not a member of the academic world by their own att attestation, I suspect. 
I recognize that most of the people I know are equally outsiders, even if they have a, found a way to make that work for them. All of us, importantly, feel underutilized. Like we were given better tools to do more and we are all unilaterally underperforming. Just like all of those poor, destitute Russian intellectuals coming out of the educational system and not being able to do anything with it. And like them, I see a lot of these disgruntled and especially angry young men getting into trouble. Adopting ideas that are half-baked, poorly developed, and getting very, very carried away with them. I see, as C.S. Lewis famously said in one passage on an experiment in criticism, a lot of discussions that generate more heat than light. I see many people using the aesthetic of intellectualism to prove their points without having any rationality or any good arguments to back up those points. I see a lot of talk and not a lot of action, as Dostoevsky did. And what action I do see, as Dostoevsky saw, I see as destructive. I see counter-protesters shooting protesters. I see violent mass killings at schools, at colleges. That's the world I live in. And I think it is very close in attitude to the world that Dostoevsky saw and very much discussed at length in Demons. That's why it is the novel that is the closest to my heart, more than any other reason, even if all of the other reasons I talked about is... You know, they are definitely relevant. It's still a great book for aesthetic purposes, even if it is also a great book for our moment in history. I think we can learn a lot about ourselves by looking at this particular moment in Russian history and examining what is driving these people. The young, radical, angry young men on the one hand and Dostoevsky's elder generation of intellectuals on the other. I think we can learn a lot by examining these works closely and seeing what they teach us, seeing what Dostoevsky can teach us about navigating the complicated intellectual world that he resides in. I don't think it's far removed from our own, except perhaps insofar as the scope for us and the stakes for us are so much greater. The Russians were worried about the fate of Russia, and that was a good thing to be worried about. And history teaches us that within 50 years, many of Dostoevsky's concerns about the fate of Russia will have come to pass. The radical intellectuals took over, the inmates started running the asylum. And the vicious communist empire that came out of it was less a, you know, Fourierist utopia so much as it was a manhouse run by a tyrant playing by his own rules, using his own twisted morality to justify himself. Lenin may have been closer to Chernyshevsky's idea of what intellectuals should look like, but Stalin was almost certainly closer to someone like Raskolnikov or Ivan Karamazov or, indeed, Nikolai Stavrogin and Pyotr Stepanovich, as we will meet in Demons. It is a dark story, for sure, but it is very much ours. And we should definitely face it, eyes open, if we want to learn more about how to navigate this world. 
how to, if it is possible, fix the intellectual damage that has been done and exorcise the demons from our own lives and minds. So with that in mind, that's how I, what I want us to focus on as we proceed forward through our discussion of Dostoevsky and Russian nihilism. We're going to start with Turgenev's Fathers and Sons. We're going to read the first 18 chapters for next time, which sounds like a lot, but honestly, it's like 100 pages in the version that I have. It shouldn't be too bad. I'm hoping to knock this one out in two readings, so it shouldn't be uh, too much. Notice that this is one of the major kickoff points for the discussion of Russian intellectualism in the 1860s. Turgenev famously quotes or famously coins the term nihilist. Um, in this novel, his main character, Bazarov, is described as a nihilist and even self-describes as a nihilist. Um, we're going to talk about the way that Turgenev portrays his protagonist because it is very relevant to the way that it, we are going to see, you know, nihilists portrayed in Russian literature from here on out. But I also want to spend some time looking at the reception. The way that all of the different factions, Dostoevsky's conservatives and, you know, Chernyshevsky's moderate radicals and Pisarev's like far left radicals all respond to Bazarov as well and the way that Turgenev portrays Bazarov. Um, so be aware not just of what is Turgenev saying, which I do want to talk about, but how this might be understood at this particular intellectual moment by these fairly hostile, fairly invested parties. Um, so next time, definitely uh, Turgenev's Fathers and Children. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hi, everyone. This is Professor Kozlowski. I hope you enjoyed our lecture. Um, I just wanted to say at the end of the discussion, thank you for listening. Um, but this is a pretty small operation I've got here, and I have achieved only limited success online. Um, and so I have to ask, if you liked this lecture, share it around. Uh, talk to some people who might be interested in it, pass it along to, you know, family, friends, whoever you think might like this discussion and maybe encourage them to work on whatever reading project we're doing together. Um, if you want to do more as far as contributing and, and helping this project along, like I am, again, just totally self-funded. I'm not making a whole lot of money doing this stuff. Um, so consider visiting my, uh, my website, professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's where you will find links to all of the other projects that I have engaged in online in the last few years. Um, and you should be able to connect to any other of the topics that I've discussed in case any of those interest you. Um, but also definitely consider contributing to the Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, that's really the only actual income I make on these since I don't do advertising or anything like that. Um, so any amount of money that you can contribute, even if it's only a dollar, a dollar a month is, is a huge deal for me. Um, plus, if you do contribute to the Patreon, you get to vote on topics like the one we're probably talking about now. Um, so feel free to contribute over there. It would go a long way towards making this a more permanent fixture of my life and a, a bigger part of the time I get to spend studying and researching and talking about the stuff that I love. Um, thanks for all of your consideration. Again, like, share, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Um, and I'll talk to you again soon.